opportunity to uh, hear your word and to be able to delve into it and find truths there that will help us uh, in our relationship with you. I pray, Lord, for your empowerment and your strength today as, as your word goes forth. I pray, Lord, that, that you would be glorified in all that we do. I pray, Lord, that if there are some here today who are listening who do not know the Savior as their personal Lord and Redeemer, that, Lord, you draw them to yourself. May we hear the words that you have for us today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I haven't done a survey on, on the matter, but I, I, I wonder that if we were to go out onto the streets today and, and, and we were to ask just the commoner, the passerby, the person who isn't with us today, maybe somebody who is unchurched, and say, uh, what is your definition of a Christian? I wonder what kind of a response we would get. I don't know the answer to that. I think there would be a variety of responses that people would give to us. Uh, we do know from surveys taken that many people who self-identify as Christians also hold many other New Age beliefs, such as reincarnation and spiritual energy found in physical objects and even believing in psychics. And we also know from surveys that there are many people who describe themselves as spiritual but not religious. Now there's an oxymoron to me. Uh, they are people who consider themselves spiritual, but say that the religious faith that they have has very little to do with their day-to-day -day lives and doesn't really affect them in any kind of a way, and yet they're spiritual. In reality, they're irreligious from a proper definition. We also know that around 34% of people who claim to have no faith at all, say they're spiritual. Now, isn't that interesting? We also know that the religiously unaffiliated, there's a term for those kind of people, we call them the nuns, not N-U-N, but N-O-N-E-S. They're called the nuns. They, they, they say they are spiritual, but they're not affiliated with any particular religion or denomination or church, they're, they're, they're nuns. <laughs> it's the best way we can describe them. In fact, did you know that they are the second largest religious group in North America? In the United States, nuns have overtaken Catholics, mainline Protestants, and all followers of non-Christian faiths. We're living in an age where I believe that people need Jesus more than ever, and yet we are trying to delete him from society. We're trying to get rid of Jesus from society. I was listening to the news the other night, and I, I heard a report of a University of Houston student who was denied a student government position, stating that she had, quote, latent bias that would influence her decisions because she opened her speech with a scripture from the Bible. The coach of the University of Michigan's football team, Jim Harbaugh, spoke at a right to life rally saying, I believe in having the courage to let the unborn to be born. And he quoted some scripture and now there's a whole bunch of people calling for his resignation because of his religious faith. 
And then there's a case of the high school football coach in Washington who would kneel after the football game to pray. And his advocate, those who are contradictory to him, his opponents said that his actions would open the door to, quote, much more coercive prayer in public schools and would pressure students into religious practices, and they were calling for his resignation. What about here in Canada? Christians are being persecuted in Canada, harassed, even put in jail for speaking out against certain moral issues that are clearly contradictory to the Word of God. And these religious abuses are not being ignored by the world. In the state of Ohio, the House of Representatives introduced a resolution urging the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom to, quote, consider adding Canada to the special watch list of countries where the government engages in violations of religious freedom. That's Canada. But you know, this is nothing new. It's been going on for centuries, decades. When Jesus was born, remember that King Herod tried to get rid of Jesus by having him killed. When Jesus, after he inaugurated his ministry, he went to Nazareth, remember? His hometown. People he grew up with, probably. He went to the synagogue, as was his normal practice, and they allowed him to read the Word of God, and he began to share with them. And Luke 4 says that all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up, to drive him out of town. Imagine. The Pharisees hated Jesus so much because Jesus was gathering so much attention and were gathering bigger crowds than they were that they were afraid that the Romans were going to come and take the power away from them. And so they too were trying to get rid of Jesus. And after Jesus was arrested, Matthew reports in Matthew 27, 18, for he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. You see, people are afraid of Jesus. Why? Because Jesus has a way of exposing our sin. Jesus has a way of showing us what we are really like on the inside. Jesus has a way of causing there to be guilt to rise up in our hearts. And so we're afraid of him. And so we avoid him and we call him names and we discredit him and we try to rid him from our society. But in reality, everyone needs Jesus. How do I know that? Because every time we get rid of Jesus, we try to fill the void in our hearts that Jesus leaves by engaging in other things. We try to fill the void, but by his absence, we'll fill it with drugs or sex or alcohol or excessive work or even religious activities or other religions because there's a void in our hearts that only God can fill. The world really is looking for Jesus, but they really don't know what it means to be a Christian. I believe the world doesn't know. They don't know what a Christian is. I'd like you to turn with me to Acts chapter 11 and verse 26. I know that we're used to expository preaching. This is a bit of a textual sermon this morning. We're going to be doing some Bible page flipping today. 
Acts chapter uh, 11, the latter part of verse 26. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now, a disciple is a follower of Christ. He's a learner. Now, Paul and Silas had been preaching in Antioch for about three months. And they were holding evangelistic crusades, if you will. They were preaching the gospel on the street, in the synagogue, and, and large numbers of people were coming to know Christ, and a great work was being established there in the church of Antioch, and people began to hear about the evangelists and people being saved, and, and so in Antioch, they began calling them Christ ones, Christ followers, Christians. And that's where the word Christian was first coined for those who follow Christ as their Savior. And today I'd like to talk to you about what is a Christian? What is a Christian? When I was in grade five, our school system offered a band program, a school band program. It began in grade five, went all the way up through grade 12. And so, Mr. Clyde Moore, the district band leader, uh, music guy, he came into our fifth grade class, and he demonstrated the various instruments that could be played. And he could play them all, you know, pretty well. And, and so, I loved music. I wanted to be a part of the band. So, I ran home, and I asked my dad and my mom, can I join the band? And they said, Yes. And so we went down to the local music store. Now, our, our little town was only about less than 12,000 people, so it was a very small music store. We went down to the local music store, and, and uh, my dad said, uh, you know, what do you want to play? And I said, I'd like to play the trumpet. And the guy behind the counter said, well, we're all sold out of trumpets. How about a clarinet? And so I wanted to play the, the trumpet, but I ended up walking out with a clarinet. Now, the clarinet is kind of a cool instrument, you know, but I always wanted to play the trumpet, and so I would always look up at the trumpet section with a little bit of envy whenever we were in band. But I kind of have a music, an, an ear for music, and so it wasn't hard for me to pick it up, and initially I learned some scales and some notes and some key signatures, and, you know, I learned, I learned how to play the notes on the clarinet, but because I tend to have this this pretty good ear for music, eventually I began playing the music by ear. In other words, I could hear the guy playing next to me and I knew how to play it. I don't know how that works. It just works in my head. And so for five years, I was kind of playing the clarinet by ear. Five years later, grade 10, Mr. Moore decided that he was going to test us by sending home a cassette tape, you remember those? <laughs> a cassette tape and a sheet of music. We were to record the music, bring it back, he would score the, the test. I flunked the test. You want to know why? Because I had failed to learn the notes, the scales, and the key signatures. And so in reality, I really didn't know how to play the clarinet. Oh, I had a clarinet. I could blow the clarinet. 
I could even make some music. I had been doing so for five years on the clarinet. Eventually, I graduated to the bass clarinet and then the contrabass clarinet. And I could play it all by ear. I could hear the bump, 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 bump. You know, I could do that easy. And yet, when I was asked to read the music, I had no one next to me to listen to. So I didn't know the music. I couldn't hear it. So I couldn't play the music. And the reality is that although I owned a clarinet and I could blow the clarinet, I really wasn't a clarinet player. And you know, in the very same way, there are a lot of people today who have a desire to be a Christian. They want to live the Christian life. They want to be in the band. And they've been told that they ought to be a Christian And they know the language of a Christian. They can play a few notes, but they never have learned what a Christian really is. You see, just playing in the band doesn't make you a musician. And in the very same way, there are a lot of people who think they're a Christian, but they don't understand what a Christian is. They think they are born again because they were born in a Christian country and so they must be a Christian. I don't know what country that is anymore. Some people think that if they attend a particular church and maybe go through some membership classes and get their name on the roll that, well, now I'm a Christian. Other people just think that being a Christian means a bunch of do's and don'ts and mostly don'ts, and so they reject it altogether, not really understanding what a Christian is. Or there are people who think, well, I have Christian parents. I'm automatically a Christian. But it's in the book of John, in chapter 1, that Jesus clearly tells us, Verse 12, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. In other words, there's absolutely nothing that you and I can do to become a Christian by our good works, by our good performance, by Christian parents, by inheriting it. By, by purchasing it, by doing what it, that we cannot become a Christian in our own strength. It's only God who is able to make us acceptable for the kingdom of God. You can try to be a good person. It doesn't make you a Christian. And we can go to church and live a moral life, but that doesn't make us a Christian And we can give to the poor and and even serve on a church committee, but that does not make us a Christian. And there are millions of people today who think they are a Christian, but they are not a Christian in the narrowest sense of the term. They have never been born again. They have never received Christ into their heart. And if they died, they would not go to heaven. And so what is a Christian? I hope you want to know. To say it plainly, a Christian is a person who has encountered a personal encounter with Jesus Christ. He's a person who has had a personal encounter with Jesus Christ. 
He's a person who has made the decision to accept Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior. It's a person who has made a choice. He's made a choice to follow Jesus, confessing that they are a sinner and that Jesus is the only one who could have paid for their sin to make it possible for them to have a relationship with God. Romans chapter 10, verse 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. In other words, a person is it becomes a Christian when they declare that they believe that Jesus is who he says that he is, the Savior of the world, and who put their confidence in what Jesus did for them when he paid for their sin by dying on the cross. A Christian is a person who has made a choice to follow Jesus. Oh, there are a lot of people trying to live the Christian life, but Christ doesn't live in their hearts. Over in the book of Colossians, chapter 2, verses 8 to 10, the Apostle Paul reminds us, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Now, you see, Satan tries to convince us and deceives people into thinking that they can become a Christian through using world philosophies and empty deceit, and as he says here, according to human tradition. That's how we are deceived into thinking that we are a Christian. Satan says, oh, just go ahead and live a godly life. Go ahead and do that. Or why don't you just, you know, try it. Try to be a good person. You're going to be all right. Uh, Do some good deeds. Uh, Be a good person. You're going to be all right. Listen, I, I haven't been to a funeral yet that the survivors did not wish, hope, or think that the one who has passed away is in heaven regardless of what they believed or how they lived here on this earth. We cannot become a Christian because of somebody else's hope, desire, or wish. But a Christian is a person who has, as Paul says, the fullness of Christ living in them. And Jesus is the only one who can place us into the family of God and make us a Christian. John chapter 1 and verse 12, I go back to the book of John, the The book of John, you know, is a great book to to lead people who are wanting to receive Christ or wanting to learn more about Christ because it's a book of salvation. John chapter 1 and verse 12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Well, we can't earn the right to become children of God. You can't be good enough. You can't do enough good things. You can't get into heaven just because somebody else wishes it. We become children of God by believing in his name and receiving Christ as our Lord and our Savior. And then John says, 
he grants the right for you to have entrance into the presence of God. Years ago, uh, when I was a student, a student at Moody, we went to Florida. We went on this evangelistic campaign. And then uh, we took a day to go to uh, Walt Disney World in Florida. That was before, actually, Epcot Center was, was created. They were just building it. That shows you how old I am. And we, we, we thought, we're students. We can't afford to get in. You know, it's expensive to get into Disney World. One of our mates, teammates, said, I have a friend that works at Walt Disney World. I'll call him. She called him. He said, yeah, I'll get you tickets. Meet me at the front gate. So we showed up at the designated time. The guy that was said he had the tickets, he met us at the front gate. He handed us tickets. He granted us the right to go to Walt Disney World. We could not have gotten in otherwise. We could have stood at the gates and said, hey, I'm a student at Moody Bible Institute and I don't have enough money to get in. Would you let us in? Would you be kind? No, 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 no. Do you have a ticket? The only way we could get in was if we had a ticket and we couldn't get it for ourselves. It had to be granted to us. In the very same way, we have to be granted permission by Jesus to enter into the presence of God and we cannot afford it, we cannot work for it, we cannot get it, we cannot stand at the gates and ask for permission. We have to be granted the permission to come in. And Jesus, he was the only one who can give the permission. Secondly, a person becomes a Christian. When a person becomes a Christian, the Holy Spirit comes to live in them and gives them the power to live the Christian life. Did you know that we can't live the Christian life in our own strength, not in our own power? No, no, no. It's only by the Spirit of God that we can live the Christian life. Over in the book of Romans, in chapter 8, verse 11 Paul writes, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the, from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. You see, the same spirit who rose Jesus from, from the dead, now try to get this in your head, the same spirit who rose Jesus from the dead is the Spirit who comes and lives in you to rise you from the dead, to give you life, to give you the ability to not only have eternal life, but to live this life. And so we can't get into heaven on our own. We can't live the Christian life on our own, but it's all through Jesus. And no one can be a Christian unless... He has been to the cross and received Christ as Savior, and the Holy Spirit lives in him. Intellectually, you might believe in Jesus, but that's not enough. Maybe you've had some sort of an emotional experience, but that's not enough. But it's an act of the will that says, I will receive Jesus. I will give my life to Christ. Jesus told the religious ruler Nicodemus, unless one is born again, 
He cannot see the kingdom of God. Have you been to the cross? Have you received him as Savior? Have you, by choice of the will, said, I will receive Christ as my Savior? Let's talk about what happens when a person becomes a Christian. Number one, the Spirit gives us a new nature. A new nature. It's in, over in the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 17. I'm sure that you've memorized this by heart. Where he says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a what? New creation. What happens? The old has what? Passed away. Behold, the what? New has come. Isn't that a marvelous verse? That should be our favorite verse beyond John 3.16. (laughs) Because when we become a Christian, the old has passed and a new has come. Instead of looking at us as merely human beings... When we become a Christian, God looks at us in an entirely new way. When our sins are forgiven, and when we are given the righteousness of Christ, he sees us as a new creation. We become something we were not before. Our identity changes from being a fallen version of ourselves to being associated with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And the Spirit gives us a new nature, which means a new morality, changed behavior, a sense of how to live. In fact, the old version of what we were before is no longer recoverable because the old is gone and the new has come. All the old dreams, all the ideas, the agendas and purposes of the old nature have ceased to exist. And they have been replaced by Christ's ideas, Christ's agendas, Christ's purposes in an entirely new creation called Christian. Some time ago, I logged onto my computer and Microsoft had an announcement for me. It was lovely, made me so happy to see an announcement from Microsoft again. And they reported to me that there was a a new platform available to me, some new software. They they wanted to change the nature of my computer. They, they, They wanted to update my operating system. Now, here was the hitch. If you chose the green button, if you chose to push the right button and updated your computer, you could never go back. If you didn't like the new operating system, you couldn't say, oops, I'd like to have the old one back again. As a matter of fact, after I updated my system, I I came to recognize that some of the stuff that I was using on my old system no longer worked on my new system, and some of it was gone completely, and I could not recover it. And that's what happens when we accept Christ as our Savior. The old is gone, the new has come, and there's no going back. We get a new operating system. We have a new nature. When Christ enters into our life, all things become new. Number one, we have a new desire to obey Christ and his commands. Jesus talked about this over in Matthew. 
Matthew 7, verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. In other words, we don't pick and choose which commands to obey. Oh, I like that one. I don't like that one very much. I'll do that one. Oh, that one's too hard. No, 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 no. We don't complain about God wants us to do. But with a new heart and a new joy, we gladly do with obedience of our hearts what Jesus commands. And then we willingly begin to turn away from old habits and sins. Over in the book of 1 John, chapter, uh, chapter 3, verses 3 and 4. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. And everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. In other words, if a person says they are a Christian, but they keep on practicing the old habits and the old sins and absolutely make no attempt to change anything, they're not really saved. Because a saved person will have a new conscience. They'll begin to change their sinful nature by the power of the Holy Spirit. We can't do that on our own. It's got to be through the power of the Holy Spirit. Maybe not immediately, but progressively. We begin to change. Our behavior changes. But also a Christian will experience a change towards other people. Matthew chapter 22 uh, verse 37, Jesus said, you shall love what? Your neighbor, who's that? The guy sitting next to you, the person across the alley, the person across the street, that obnoxious individual that you keep running into, the person at work that gives you a bad time. Love your neighbor as what? Yourself. You love yourself. I know you do because you all look pretty good today. You know, you came dressed well. You probably did some bathing before you came. You're eating well. You love yourself. Love that guy too. Like you love yourself. What? What? Wait. That's right. When you become a Christian, you get a new nature. And your nature dictates that you're going to love your neighbors yourself. A true Christian loves other people no matter who they are, what they've done, what they look like, where they live, what their job is. We no longer have hatred towards people. We don't hold animosity in our heart towards people. We love our neighbor as we love ourselves. Paul talked about this over in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, did he not? The great love chapter of the Bible. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant. It's not rude. It doesn't insist on its own way. It's not irritable. It's not resentful. It doesn't rejoice in wrongdoing. Rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Do you have those characteristics of a Christian in your life? Those are the marks of a spirit-filled, spirit-anointed, spirit-empowered Christian. I don't know about you, but I could get real irritable in the day in which we live. 
You know, it's easy not to accept what other people do. It's easy to hold a grudge. But you know what the Spirit does? Every time I have that temptation, He convicts me of my sin. And I must confess my sin, and then He brings me back in line with what His desired will is. And then I am filled once again with the characteristics that come from the Holy Spirit. If you call yourself a Christian, but there hasn't been any changes in your life, you better begin to question whether you've been converted at all. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7 and verse 16, you will recognize them by their what? Fruits. In other words, when you become a child of God, a change begins to take place. And you can see it in the life of of the, in the fruit that your life produces. What you say, well, what's that? What are the fruit of the Spirit? Well, I don't know. Galatians chapter 5, verse 22. <clears throat> but the fruit of the Spirit, <clears throat> here it is. Are you ready? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, against such thing, there is no law. That's the fruit that the Spirit comes and brings and gives to our life, indicating that we are genuinely a Christian. And listen, if those things are not evident in a person's life, generally, progressively, in a growing kind of way, they should begin to question whether they are really saved. If we see progressively and genuinely no change in those areas, they're just always the same. They never showed the fruit of the Spirit. I would question whether they're really saved or not, and they should question whether they're really saved. Because when the Spirit comes, He brings the fruit of the Spirit, and He does the change in our lives, and we begin to produce His fruit. If you don't have those fruit. Maybe you think you're a Christian, but as Billy Graham once said, you're living in a fool's paradise. A Christian is a person who has received Christ and a change has taken place in the way that they live. But also a Christian is a person who has accepted a challenge. You've accepted a challenge. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 16, Jesus speaking. He says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself Take up his and follow me. You know, we're being challenged in so many ways in our society today. We're hearing so many voices pleading for us to follow their way of thinking, their philosophy of life, their political platform, their type of behavior. Materialism and secularism is taking over our society with a rage leading us down the dangerous path. And this generation is being forced to make a choice between two roads. The one road that promises so much and yet leads to utter destruction or the more difficult road that is narrow and full of twists and turns and yet leads to life, life eternal. Jesus issues a challenge. He says that unless you are willing to accept my challenge and follow me, you cannot be my disciple. We're living in a society that's focused on building bigger and better, right? 
Even some churches measure their success by how many people flood through their doors and how big the Sunday offering is. But Jesus was busy eliminating people. Have you ever noticed that? When the crowds got too large, he would say, you're gonna have to deny yourself, and a bunch of them left. And, and then if the crowd was still too large, he'd said, you're going to have to take up a cross and follow me. And then a bunch more left. Most of the rest left because they knew what it meant to take up a Roman cross. They had seen people hanging on a Roman cross before, and that wasn't too appealing to them. They had seen followers of Jesus being arrested and beaten for their faith, and that didn't appeal to them either. But Jesus said that if you want to follow me, then you're going to have to resign yourself to the unpopular of being a Christian, and most people aren't willing to do that. Most people aren't willing to stand up and give their allegiance to Christ if it means being belittled or beaten or ostracized. Let me ask you, are you sure that you are a Christian? Have you taken the challenge of Jesus? Have you said, I will follow Jesus no matter where it takes me or what it means for my life? Thirdly, I want you to know that being a Christian means experiencing a new fullness of life. Over in John chapter 10 and verse 10, these are the words of Jesus. He says, the thief comes only to steal and to kill and destroy. I came that you might have what? Life. And that you might have it what? Abundantly. When we receive Christ, He places us into the kingdom of light where we experience a new abundance of life. The kind of an abundance of life that you can't get in this world. The kind of abundance that the world cannot even offer to you. It's not the life the world is offering, but it's a life full of the riches and blessings of knowing Christ. I'm not saying you're going to have a three-car garage with a Maserati sitting in one. I'm not saying that you're going to have a swimming pool in your backyard. I'm not saying that you're going to be able to travel the world on your own personal yacht. I'm saying that he gives you a life that only he can give, and it's an abundant life, even though, as Warren said this morning, some weeks are really hard, difficult weeks. We go through valleys and up on hills, and we go through trauma and difficulties, yet Christ is with us, walking us through all of those valleys, the world can't offer that to you. It's an abundant life. It's a life that only Jesus can give. It's a life that promises an abundance both here and for eternity. 